And as you're grabbing your seat, go ahead and, and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 12. And I want to begin by reading our, our text um, together. Um, I've entitled this sermon, Love That Acts. Uh, last week, the, the title was Love That Lasts. But I think what we see here is that uh, not only is our love to be enduring, it's to be a love that is filled with action. And the overarching thought really is love. So I want to back up to verse 9, and I want to read through verse 16 so we kind of follow the flow of the context together. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes beginning in verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Maybe we bring up the house lights, do you mind there? Sorry. Sorry, I just realized I just read that and none of you could see your Bibles. I could see mine just fine. But I hope you got the gist of, of what Paul is saying there. I hope you hear what he is saying. And, and I think it's important to understand why a passage like this is in the Bible and why there are so many passages like this in the Bible. You say, what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean passages that tell us what it looks like to be a Christian, like what it means to actually live like a follower of Jesus Christ. And the reason that passages like this are in the Bible is because it's easy to claim to be a Christian and not be very Christ-like. That is actually one of the most common reasons I hear from people in the unbelieving world, whether it's true or not, as to why they reject Christianity. It's because what they see in the lives of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ so often doesn't line up with the message they claim to believe and the claim that, that they preach to others. You see, what Paul has been telling us is that it's very easy to actually have the mind of the world to be shaped by the world instead of having a mind that is shaped by the Word of God. It's very easy to be lulled to sleep. It's very easy to begin to, to do those things that we used to do in our former lives before we knew Christ. But to be a Christian is to constantly fight to make sure that Christ has all of you. That Christ is being formed in you. And the reason why passages like this exist is because that's very hard. It doesn't come naturally. I was listening to a podcast this week, and one of the individuals who was being interviewed said something that really resonated with my heart. Here's what he said. He was reflecting all of the he was reflecting on all the, the infighting in Christianity, all of the the willingness to critique and tear others apart. And he, he said this, he said, I, I want to be around people who are like Jesus. The people I want to learn from and look up to are those that have remained focused on Jesus, who have a desire to be intimate with Him, to talk about Him, to delight in Him, to glory in Him, and to share about Him with other people. And then he said this, he said, those that demonstrate His character over time, and he talked about how a real belief in Jesus plays out in the hardest moments of our lives. Which is why I think it's so fitting that the section we're looking at today comes right after verse 13. Or sorry, verse 12, where he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. We looked at that last week, the reality of tribulation and trials in the Christian life. And we saw this, that trials can make us, listen, either bitter or better. They can make us soft or hard. They can make us sweet or sour. But here's the reality. They can make us more like Jesus or less like Jesus. That's really what we're getting at. That's what the Bible is concerned with. 
Are we, as we follow Christ in this life, looking, listen, looking more and more like Jesus or we're looking less like Jesus? This is really the question that, that believers need to be asking themselves on a regular basis. How legitimate is my faith, in other words? How real is it? How genuine is it? The way you see how serious you are about your faith is by how much you're actually looking like Jesus. And again, let me just, let me just put my cards on the table here. This is, this is hard work. And I, I want to be very clear with you. I, I want to be more like Jesus. And I hope you do too. I hope that if you're in Christ today, that your heart's like, yes, I want to look more like Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to know the intimacy of fellowship with Jesus more and more. I want to be formed more and more into the image of Christ. I mean, we pray this all the time. We talk about this all the time. But I hope your heart right now is screaming. I hope the Spirit of God inside you is provoking your heart saying, yes, yes, I want you. Listen, because God say, I want you to be more like Jesus. And because this is so hard, and because, like, admittedly, I need so much help in this, I've actually framed this outline in the form of a prayer. Last week, we ended on the command to be constant in prayer. We spent some time praying, actually, as a church family, just just getting before the Lord and and petitioning God and seeking His face and asking Him to move in us. And so, I want to kind of carry that theme forward and continue in the same kind of spirit, because if you're anything like me, then you could acknowledge today that, listen, being like Christ is very hard. We fail all the time. We need so much grace, and we, we need so much help in this, but God is able to provide. Amen? So here's what we need to do. We need to seek God for this. And when we look at this outline, it's a very simple outline today. It's it's one word, okay? You don't have to write down much. One word outline, okay? Six points, one word each point. And here's what I I want you to see. Each one of these things is something you ought to be pursuing to be more Christ-like. And because it's something you ought to be pursuing, it should be something you ought to be praying that God would help you with, okay? So here's what I want to do. Before we even get in here, before I even... Um, let you know what these words are and what you should be pursuing. Here's what I want to ask you to do. We're going through six things today, and, and I know we need to work on all of these things. All of us need all of these things in our lives, and then we need to grow in certain ways. But here's what I want to ask you to pray and consider today. Which one of these things do you believe God wants you to work on first and most in your life? Okay? So that's the question I want you to just let it sit in your mind. Which one of these things does God want you to work on first and most? And so I just want to invite you now just to bow your head with me, and I want, you just to, I want you to pray that to God, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray for me. And let's ask God to work in our time together. Lord, we, we believe that you are working already. And Father, we just, we're bowing now again as a confession of how much we need you. Out of a recognition, Lord, of, of God, we are not who we ought to be. We are not who we one day will be, but God, we, we desire to be more like Jesus. Lord, I pray that that would be the burning desire in every one of your children's hearts today, right now. And so, God, would you help us? Would you show us which one of these things in particular we need to hear about most and consider most? And, and God, would you help us to grow in these areas so that we, Lord, might be more like Jesus, that you might receive more and more honor, more and more glory through every part of our lives. We pray this now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, six characteristics of genuine love. That's what we're looking at. And here's how I'm framing this. Lord, help me to genuinely love others through, first, generosity. Generosity. Lord, help me to genuinely love others through generosity. You'll notice what he says here in verse 13. We're breaking it up really into two different parts, but the first part here is contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And this is a very practical mark of Christian community and of the Christian life, generosity. The word here is actually a part of a family of words. They share the the same root word, and the word actually itself means to share. It's the Greek word koinonia. Some of you are familiar with that because you've heard that in terms of Christian fellowship. We share our lives with one another. We share our lives in community with one another. And this is what the early church in the book of Acts modeled They sold their possessions, they gave to those in need, they held everything in common. And what Paul is doing here is is he's, he's not urging us to have fellowship with the saints, not with this passage, 
but instead to have fellowship with, to participate in the needs of the saints. So in other words, one of the healthy signs that you are a follower of Jesus Christ is that you have a heart to meet the needs of those who have those needs. And particularly in the body of Christ, one of the things I want you to see is that the Scriptures emphasize, yes, we need to be helping those outside of the body of Christ. We need to have compassion and care, and we need to meet physical needs as well as the spiritual needs of the world around us. But the Bible actually always prioritizes, it's so interesting, the body of Christ, how we function together, how the family operates. And the reason should be very simple and very obvious is because when the body is healthy, right, when we're actually ministering to one another, when we're serving one another, we're caring for one another, we'll be more effective as a body in order to reach the world around us. You see how this works, right? We have to be healthy internally if we're going to be effective externally. And the term share here, it indicates a deep involvement and participation in the lives of others. The word is actually often used to designate financial or material help. So again, I just want you to see how practical this is. It's used to talk about giving others clothing and food and shelter. It's, it's literally supplying the, 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 the needs for daily living. And obviously, this is done by those who have those means, who are able to meet the needs. They are more well-off, and they're able to meet the needs of those who are less well-off. And part of our ability to do this, it requires being aware of the needs of others and seeking then to meet them. And I'll just tell you this, I I absolutely love being a part of a church that does this so well. Honestly, like there's there's a lot of things that I can look at the church and say, we need to grow here, we need to grow here, but I can honestly say when it comes to generosity, I have witnessed so much of this in this church family and it blows my mind. And I'm constantly hearing about the ways in which you, the body of Christ, are seeking to be generous to those around you. And it's, it's staggering. Some of you, you don't get to see this as often as I do, and I apologize for that, I I get a front row seat. Listen, I get a front row seat to a lot of garbage, I get a front row seat to a lot of good stuff. And I rejoice in that. But but you as a church family, you do this so well. And, And listen, we have in our church, we have a benevolence fund as a part of our ministry in the life of this church. In other words, we have money that we set aside every year as a part of our budget. We have money that many of you have given, you know, a fund that many of you have given towards. And, and that fund exists solely simply to meet needs of people who are hurting, people who need extra care, people who can't pay their rent, people who can't put food on the table. All of these, we do this as a church. But can I just tell you something? We so rarely have to tap into that fund as elders in this church. We, 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 ha- we rarely have to tap in. You, know, you want to know why? It's because you as a church family are already meeting the needs of one another. It's, it's amazing. I'm, and I'm dead serious. It's, it's incredible to watch. It's, it, it is so common in this church for people to hear of a need and then people to jump at meeting that need. It, it's amazing. We put out an email. Hey, we, somebody needs care. Somebody needs help. And boom, people respond just like that. It's not uncommon. I, I, just, I heard a story this past week, um, people, somebody was telling me in the church office that there was somebody around Christmas time in this church who said, we got some extra money, and we just, we love to be able to bless uh, a family in this church, uh, maybe who's in need, could you, we don't want to know who they are, but could you just redirect these funds towards them? And can I just say, like, things like that happen more often than you realize. And the way this works most frequently in life of our church, the way we see this, is actually through our small group ministry. I cannot tell you how amazing it is to watch our small group ministry, which is essentially, listen, just the body of Christ mobilizing all the time to meet one another's needs, whether they're spiritual or physical. We watch small groups all the time, just generously giving to serve one another, to serve those in the church, to meet the needs. I'm so encouraged by this. And so I just, I, it's nice to be able to start off in a sermon by saying how encouraged I am. And for you to, listen, for you to receive encouragement We've been blessed by God with people who simply want to give, simply want to bless others. And, and you say, well, why do we do this? I was thinking about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He, he writes to actually encourage the Corinthian church, and he does so by appealing to the example of the Macedonian church. 
And he talks about the Macedonian church. They gave, they gave to meet the needs of other believers, of another church, actually. They, they were told by Paul about a church who was hurting, a church who was suffering uh, persecution, and therefore they were suffering um, just the physical needs of life. And the church jumps to meet these needs. They go over and above. They give out of their poverty even. And here's what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, I say this, he's telling them now about giving themselves, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, listen to these words that he uses, that your love is also genuine. You see how he attaches it here to genuine love? He says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know what he says? You know what he says the greatest motivation for generosity is? It's the gospel. The gospel is the greatest display of generosity the world has ever known. Here is the, the, the one who is rich in glory, Jesus Christ, who becomes poor by taking on the form of a servant. And why does he do that? So that others might become rich in him. You see, so all of our giving, all of our generosity, I want you to see this, church, it is motivated by and it displays in a powerful way the beauty, the generosity of the very gospel of Jesus Christ that saved us. Isn't that awesome? Every time you give, this is why, we, this is why in our church what we say is continue your, your giving. Right now we do it online. Continue online giving. We always say this. Did you catch this? As an act of worship. Did you catch that? That's intentional. Every time we say that, we want you to be aware, listen, that what you're doing is an act of worship. It's an overflow of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has been so generous to you in your salvation. He's been so generous in providing above and beyond in financial resources and blessings. And so what a joy, what a joy to respond to the gospel and to display the gospel by our generous giving in worship. Can I just maybe give you one practical application from this one suggestion? Because I, I think this, this happens frequently in our church, but I want, us to, I, I want us to excel still more, and I think we can. And some of us are hearing this, and you're like, man, this actually isn't me, and so I need to hear this. Maybe this is the one thing God's saying you need to be praying for. Here's what I want to suggest you do. Some of you do this already. Set some money aside today, okay? Just set some money aside. I, I don't care how much. Um, let, it, let it kind of be based upon your your means, your income, maybe go a little above and beyond. I don't care if it's $5, you know, I don't care, youth, I don't care if it's $10, because youth, you're included in this, I, I think this is good for you too. Set some money aside intentionally. Just put it aside. I don't care if it's five, 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, I don't care what it is. Set it aside, and here's what I want you to do. Put it away and say this, I, I, this is reserved for me meeting the needs of somebody else in the body of Christ. When I hear about a need, I want to be able to just respond and go, I've got this already, I'm meeting that need. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. Do that and then pray. Pray, God, would you, would you provide for me a need to be met? And God, then would I respond with generosity and cheerfulness and would I meet that need and display the gospel of Jesus Christ? Okay, secondly, and again, hear this as a prayer, Lord, help me to genuinely love others through hospitality. And these two, generosity and hospitality, are actually linked together in some ways, aren't they? I mean, I think they're a part of the same phrase here. Look, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality, in many ways, is a way in which we continue to express generosity. It's another means of providing assistance for people. And in the context of the first century, it's helpful to understand what, what this looked like. You see, this was often the case that, that because believers would travel, and oftentimes the financial ability to pay their own lodging was missing, um, there weren't as many hotels or motels as you might think. And so their ministry or their visits would often depend upon the hospitality of other believers. They would need other believers to take them in, which is why, by the way, um, interestingly, the author of Hebrews, this is what he says in Hebrews 13, verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is such an interesting verse. Now, and, and I don't know about you, like, I'm still trying to process what it would look like to entertain an angel, but I think part of the point is you're not aware when you're entertaining an angel. 
But what I want you to see, some of, so much of this, listen, so much of this hospitality was about bringing people into your home that were indeed strangers. You didn't even know who they were. You knew that they were followers of Christ. You knew that they loved the Lord. You knew that they, maybe they were coming there to do some ministry. And so what did you do? You, you jumped at the opportunity to host them, to be hospitable towards them. And maybe, maybe you would be blessed to have actually entertained angels. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so, so I'm just kind of broadening a bit of the application here, and I think this is part of the intent of the Apostle Paul. He's talking about hospitality, yes, to strangers, but I think he's talking also about hospitality towards those we know. And he actually goes a little bit further than simply taking in people who maybe are in need. Here's what he says. He urges us to pursue hospitality. That's the word he uses here to pursue it. In other words, to go out of our way to welcome people into our homes. This, this is, by the way, one of the fastest ways to show the love of God in the family of God. I can't tell you how many times I hear people who visit churches and, and who look for a church home who express that one of, one of the, the, the saddest things they experience is walking into a church and nobody says hello. Some of you are like, that's my church. When can I go? All you introverts. <laughs> but sadly, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But honestly, it's, it's really, it is so sad to hear people tell stories. Like I walked into a church, nobody came up to me, nobody talked to me. It's like I didn't even exist. And I'll just tell you this, we, we try to very intentionally in our church be a church that is warm and welcoming and hospitable, and we don't do a perfect job in this. But, but we used to, you know, back when, you know, back when we were allowed to do stuff like this, you know, if you remember those days back in the school, we had, a, we had like a welcome team. We had a hospitality team. We had people who were there specifically to make sure, you know, you were greeted. We still have this. You're, you're greeted when you walk in the door. You say, why are we doing that? Is that just some church growth strategy? No, it, it is not pragmatic Okay, this is theological. It's theological. What we're trying to do is, is we're trying to express the hospitality of God. We're trying to be a church that is warm and welcoming, and that when people walk into there, they, they sense immediately, listen, God must be in this place because these people actually care about me. I mean, they walked right up to me and said hello. They, they got to know me. They asked me my name. They tried to learn some things about me. You see, this is, this is what it means to be hospitable, especially in the context of the local church. Just flip over one page, at least it's in my Bible, Romans 15. Look at verse 7. Say, so can I just, like, you say, how, how theological is this really, Ian? Like, this sounds a little bit too pragmatic. Look at verse 7. Just look at this. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's not awesome. Like you, do you see the way we welcome one another? Again, it, it demonstrates that we truly know the gospel. Because we know, listen, isn't this true, church? We know that at one point we were once strangers. We were aliens. We were foreigners. I mean, we, we didn't belong to the household of God. And what did God do? God, graciously, through Jesus Christ, He welcomed us into His family. He opened His arms wide so that we could walk right into the family of God, embraced by the Father. This is what Jesus has done in the cross. He died paying for our sin, the very thing that kept us strangers and alienated from God. He pays the penalty, he deals with the problem, and then he rises from the grave conquering sin and death so that it is no longer the thing that stops us from being in fellowship and communion with God and with his family. He gets rid of that altogether, and then he invites us in. He welcomes us in only by his grace. Now, I want to say this, that this can't just be formal ministries in the life of our church. We do have formal ministries that have done this in the life of our church, and that's, that's all good and fine. But I want to encourage you with this. This must be our mutual ministry to one another. This must be something that happens, yes, in an organized way. But listen, more than that, the true mark that this is taking root, that the gospel is taking root in our lives, is that this kind of stuff happens more organically. You can look around, and you can just watch it happening. You see it. There's a desire for it. 
You say, well, what would this look like then in my life? Well, here's what it looks like, first of all, when you come to church. When you come to church, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Some of us, we come to church and we look immediately for the people we know, right? And I get it. We want to, we, and that's good. We want to fellowship with people we know, and that's wonderful. But here's, here's really, really something important. We also ought to be looking for people we don't know. We ought to be walking or watching for people who are walking in off the street, walking in and they don't know anybody. Watch for people who are standing alone and don't just assume they want to be alone. In fact, assume the opposite. And even if they do want to be alone, who cares? <laughs> we need to welcome people. We need to love them and embrace them and get to know them. Here's one way that you can do this in your home. Invite them over. I mean, this is, basic, this, I know this is one-on-one stuff. Hospitality. Invite them over to your home for a coffee or a meal. Let me ask you this. Who was the last person you had in your home? I don't care how big your home is. I don't care how much stuff you have. That's, that's not what I'm worried about. Who's the last person you had in your home? Some of you are great at this as well, by the way. Some of you just, you just excel at this and you're like, this isn't my struggle. Praise the Lord. I'm really, really thankful for you. And so many of you model this so well to me. Others struggle with this. It's hard and I get it. And, and I'm not trying to overburden you and, and create a, an unhealthy expectation for what this must look like. There's, there's ambiguity here in, in like the frequency and, and, and how often this needs to take place in your life. But what I, what I can't get around is the fact that it tells us this must be true of us. So why do we struggle so much with hospitality? Well, I think a lot of reasons. I think selfishness a lot of times. I think some of us are just naturally more introverted, so it's harder. It's just very difficult for us to engage on that level, and, and so it's a bit of a battle there. I think some of us are fearful. And here's what I mean by that. I think, I think we try to live up to everyone else's standards when we, when we host people. I know a lot of you feel this. You, you, you know, you just, you know what other people are doing or you've seen stuff online. You know, everybody's posting their Instagram photos about their parties they're having. And you're like, well, I can't do that. And so because we try to live by everybody else's standards, we get so stressed out so we do nothing instead. And that's not better. Let me just give you a couple principles to help you with this. Your home does not have to be perfect in order for you to be hospitable, Okay. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfectly cleaned. I mean, a little clean's good, but it doesn't have to be perfectly clean. Your energy levels don't have to be perfect for you to host people. I know it's like, oh, I'm just tired. Hey, welcome to the club. Like, we're all tired, right? Food doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be edible. I know that's debatable in some cases. I'll let, you, I'll let you figure that out. But listen, I, I just think, like, settle for spaghetti, okay? Put that as a banner in your kitchen. We just settle for spaghetti. It's not a bad plan, okay? It's not a bad plan. It's easy, it's cheap, and it's delicious. Just be okay with it. We need to apply the KISS principle. You, you familiar with the KISS principle? Keep it simple. Saints. What did you think I was going to say? <laughs> it's the Christian version. I just think, listen, better to just keep it simple and do something than to try to be complicated and do nothing, right? And I just, I want to put some of you at ease, and I want to just free some of you up to just go for it and do it. And for those of you who, like, go above and beyond, praise the Lord. Keep going. Keep doing it. There's nothing wrong with that either. And I, I love your heart to serve people and to bless people. It's a wonderful thing. It demonstrates the heart of Christ towards his people. We are to be hospitable. Lord, help us in this Third, I want you to pray this, Lord, help me to genuinely, genuinely love others through charity. And by charity here, I don't mean like giving again. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about kindness and compassion. And, and here's how we see this play out. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In other words, be charitable to others. And this is such a fascinating statement, isn't it? Persecution and, and other forms of social ostracization and even legal action were actually almost unavoidable in the early church. They, they suffered all kinds of things. 
And persecution, this is why this is, this is so staggering. Persecution, by definition, means unjust and malicious treatment. And actually, the reason that's, that's suggested here, persecution actually means that you are being persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's not for your opinions on who's going to win the Super Bowl. It's, it's not for, you know, uh, any other reason other than the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You are facing assault and opposition because you have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, that just ramps up the injustice, doesn't it? And so here, we, we just need to see this both in its context, but also how it applies to us today. There's actually a play on words here and from the previous verse. It's the same root word that Paul uses for pursue. So pursue hospitality, and the, the root word for persecute, I think there's an intentional play on words. He's almost like saying like this, you need to pursue hospitality and realize that even as you do so in caring for the body of Christ, you are going to be, be pursued inhospitably by the world around you. So this command expresses a responsibility that Christians have towards society in general, towards a world, as we looked at last week, that often stands in opposition to Christians, opposition to our faith, to our beliefs, to our, our ideas, to our theology. Paul would write this in 1 Corinthians 4.12. He says, we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. 1 Peter 3.9, Peter says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. What does he mean by obtain a blessing? Well, if you go back to 1 Peter, I'll spare you all the details. But his point is this, you want to be sure that the blessing of, of eternity awaits you. Then here's how you know. Again, this, it all comes back around full circle. The reason you know you're saved and the reason you know you have an eternity with Christ is because here and now you actually look like Christ. So, so, so in other words, when you respond to persecution with blessing, what you're doing is you're simply being like Jesus Christ and you're proving that this world is not your home. You're proving that your hope is in Christ, that your hope is in a future yet to come, that, that no matter what you face here, listen, in terms of the cursing and curse of the pers- in, in, in terms of the persecution from the world, you know something better awaits. And so, so what you're facing in those moments does not have to control you. What you look forward to controls you. The one you put your faith in controls you. This is why so many people who are martyred, they endure the way they do. They respond the way they do. But I'll tell you this, no practical exhortation that we've come across so far in Romans chapter 12 places greater demands upon our hearts or our spirits than this command here. Bless those that persecute you. And here's the difficulty with this command. I mean, wouldn't it have been easier if, if he just said, listen, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, like our moms said to us growing up, which is also good advice. But that's not what he says. And that's why this is so hard, because we want people who hurt us to pay. That's what we want. Our flesh, we want, we want to, to extract a pound of flesh for somebody else. We want them to know what it feels like when they hurt us. We want them to hurt back. There's something within us that wants people to pay. This is, this is why, listen, this is why we relive the hurts, don't we? Like we relive the hurts that people have done to us, and oftentimes in very unhealthy ways. We relive the arguments, we relive the insults, we relive the battles that we fought, and in our minds we relive them and we re-experience the pain and we live in the, the bitterness of those moments, and oftentimes, like, here's how you know, here's how you know what's going on in your heart, because when you have those moments of reliving, those arguments, those battles, when you relitigate everything, what are you doing? You're winning the battle, right? You, you never lost an argument with somebody else in your own mind, have you? If you have, shame on you. <laughs> There's no excuse because you get to determine what you want them to say. But, but the point is this, listen, we often, we often want people to pay for what they've done to us and, and we replay these things like a loop in our brain oftentimes and even, listen, even if we don't, we don't curse people audibly, We're cursing them internally. 
We're saying all kinds of things about them in our heart. We're wishing all kinds of things towards them in our heart. And we can't get around this. This this call to bless those who persecute. You know what's really crazy? This this call um, to blessing is in response to actual persecution. We curse someone when their opinion clashes with ours. We're not afraid to wish ill of people in the body of Christ because they don't believe the same things as us. Or they just simply, again, have a different opinion on something. And what do you mean you're not a Leafs fan? I know, I don't get it either. Just don't start praying imprecatory psalms, though. I just, I tell you, look, I, I say this because I cancel culture that we would all despise and villainize in the world. Here's what I think we don't realize. In so many ways, it's actually invaded the church of Jesus Christ. We want to dig up what people say. We want to villainize people who believe differently than we do. And here, it's interesting, we're, so, we're called to respond to our persecutors in a radically unnatural way. How? Look at it again. Like how? Do nothing? Say nothing? No, no. This is not a call for passive silence, but instead for an active response. The idea here is to wish them well with kind words rather than wishing their destruction with abusive words. You say, What? But that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't, they're in the wrong. I mean, that's, that's not justice. Okay, tell that to Jesus. Like, I get it. I have the same feelings you do, but I can't get around. This is why it's hard. I can't get around what Jesus says and what Jesus did. He, he is the example, right? Here's Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is mocked and reviled. He is treated unjustly by everyone, including the authorities of the day. And what does he do? He suffers in silence. And then let me just remind you, as he hung crucified on the cross, let me just remind you what he said, what he prayed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. And you know, even feeling legitimately persecuted does not give you the right to respond however you like. It does not give you the right to curse someone, to wish their demise or destruction. It doesn't give you the right to, to name call or to verbally assault, and certainly not to, to plot, approve of, or applaud acts of violence towards someone. It does, however, give you the right to bless, to pray, and to love. Isn't that great? Matthew 5.44, Paul just ripped this right off of Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is Jesus. Luke 6, 27, 28, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. You see, responding any other way is not Christ-like. If we are to treat our persecutors like this, how much more so our brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, what kind of blessing, what does this look like? John Murray, theologian and, and commentator, he says this, he says, when we bless persons or things, we invoke God's blessing upon them. When Paul adds bless and do not curse, you notice he says bless twice here, right? It's like Paul is like double emphasizing the calling on our lives. Here's what he says, he underlines the fact that we are asking for unadulterated blessings from God, not mixed motives, not blessing and curse. No, we, we want blessing for them. We want their good. Listen, you say, what, what do I pray? We want their good. We want their repentance. We want their salvation. We want them to know Jesus Christ. You say, how can I pray that against those who are persecuting me? I know it's so hard. It's so hard, but I think Paul can resonate. Do you remember on the road to Damascus when Jesus showed up in blazing glory? What did he say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Paul writes these words, Paul's like, I've, he's like, you want to know how, how you can do this? You want to know how you, how you can respond like this? Because this is exactly how God's responded to us. We were all blasphemers. Paul himself, a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ, a persecutor of Christ himself. Aren't you thankful? Listen, church, aren't you thankful God didn't curse you when you deserved it? And instead, as Mark read for us early in the service, he's blessed you with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Aren't you, aren't you thankful that when God had every opportunity to curse you for all eternity, he would have been just in doing so. Instead, he heaped out his blessings on, on you in Christ Jesus. What an awesome God we serve. Amen?
no, this is hard. I'm not, I don't want to make light of this, but, but can we believe that God will supply what is needed? And you say, well, how, how can I do this? I've been hurt. I've been persecuted for my faith. What do I do? Start praying for those people by name. Start praying for their salvation. Start praying for their repentance. It's hard to hate people while you pray for them. Do you realize that? It's amazing how God changes our hearts through prayer. Fourthly, sympathy. Maybe this is the prayer you need today. Lord, help me to genuinely love others through sympathy. There's a strong theme now of selflessness that runs through these last three. Here's what he says. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You notice he starts here with this idea of sympathy. He calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And the idea here is to adjust our moods to the moods of other people. Love, in other words, it never stands aloof from other people's joys and from other people's pains. Love instead identifies with their experiences, with their emotions. It enters deeply into those experiences and emotions. It sings with them as well as suffers with them. It feels both their laughter and their tears. There's a sense of solidarity that we're called to experience with one another. Whatever their mood, you're supposed to come alongside and you're supposed to let your heart resonate with where they are. And it seems to require more grace to rejoice with those who are rejoicing than it is to weep with those who weep. You know what I mean by that? John Christostom, a famous church father, he said this. He said, it's easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice because nature itself prompts the former, but envy stands in the way of the latter, right? So we can, we can resonate with somebody who's weeping, and we can weep with them. We can be like, man, that's so hard. But when somebody is, is rejoicing, and they're experiencing blessing or the kindness of the Lord in a unique way, oftentimes we struggle to get there because our heart's like, well, I want that too. Don't I deserve that? It's amazing how the human heart works, the sinful, broken human heart works. You see, I would argue that you know you are truly sympathetic, not only when you genuinely weep with those who weep, but rejoice with those who rejoice. But make, make no mistake about it, Symp- sympathy means we must weep with those who weep. One author said that sympathy is two hearts tugging at the same load. I was often told um, in seminary that people uh, might never remember a word you preached, but they will remember the time that you were there when they needed you most. I hope that's not true, by the way. <laughs> I hope that both can be true. But, but you know, I, but I have experienced this. I have experienced this over and over again, and you know this to be true. It's those moments when somebody Somebody's come alongside you, and they've, they've seen the brokenness. They've seen the heartache. They've, they've seen the pain, and, and you were falling apart of the seams, and they showed up, and they sacrificed everything and anything just so they could be with you, and they could sit with you and weep with you, and their hearts could resonate with your heart, and you can go to the Lord together, and man, man, what, a, what an awesome display of Christ-likeness. Through the good, through the bad, and the ugly, we are called to be a people of sympathy, Next, we're called to be a people of harmony. And Lord, help us to love others genuinely through harmony. This here is is a call to unity in thinking. He says, live in harmony with one another. And again, he's continuing to build this case here of, of thinking. The idea here of harmony is being of the same mind. It's kind of like what Paul says in Philippians 2, too. That's his his heart for the people of God. He's calling us to a common mindset in the family of God. And a common mindset, just just so you know, it does not mean that we must all think exactly the same way about exactly the same issues or things. But there is a sense that we should all share the same basic convictions and concerns 
We should all have the same objectives and missions. For sure, there is unity that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It grounds us. It's, it's what's rescued us, and it sets our, our eyes upon the mission. It keeps us focused on what God is calling us to do. And so there's a sense here in which we're all called to, to be rowing in the same direction. There is nothing more detrimental to the progress of the church of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ than division in the church of Jesus Christ. And the miracle of the church is that God can take so many diverse individuals and he can make them one in Christ. Things that make us different, listen, they matter very little because of what makes us one in him. All different kinds of cultures and backgrounds and, and, you know, socioeconomic status and opinions and beliefs about certain things and likes and dislikes, preferences. Like, it doesn't matter because what we all have in common is our love for Jesus Christ. We know that it's the same gospel that has saved us and set us free and now has brought us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's that oneness in Christ that is to be the overarching reality that helps us forge and foster humility, and it has to be fought for because Satan wants to divide. He wants to divide and he wants to conquer. He wants us to be antagonistic towards one another. He does not want us experiencing love and harmony and peace with one another. He wants us fighting. He wants us gnawing at each other. He wants us destroying one another. This is what Satan wants for the church. And harmony is in many ways driven by the the same basic convictions and concerns that we have about, listen, about one another, filtered through the gospel. In other words, we, we can look at each other the same way. We can understand who we are in Christ, all of us. You see, the way we choose to think about one another, it impacts how we will interact with one another, how we will serve one another, how we will bless one another. It's amazing to be able to look around at people who are different than you and say, listen, they're a child of God just like me. They were bought with the same blood of Jesus Christ as me. They were rescued from sins just like me. They received forgiveness just like me. I mean, that changes the way that we look at each other. It ought to. And this is a hallmark of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Here's what Paul says. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I'll tell you what is so disheartening to listen to believers tearing one another apart over secondary issues, over opinions and preferences, even deeply held convictions. And while there are certain things we, we fight for in order to have true unity, listen, there are things we fight over and certain ways we fight for them that do not, or sorry, that do nothing but unnecessarily divide what God has united. And Paul in Galatians 5.15, it's, it's an amazing thing he says here. In the midst of theological controversy, serious theological controversy, do you want to know what he says to the church? Listen to this. He says in, in chapter 5, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Wow. I mean, such a warning against continuing strife and mutual destruction. Amy Carmichael wrote these words. She said, if I belittle those whom I am called to serve, talk of their weak points in contrast perhaps with what I think of as my strong points, If I adopt a superior attitude, forgetting who made thee to differ, and what hast thou that thou hast not received? She says this, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Lord, help me to genuinely love others through harmony, harmony with one another, and lastly and quickly, listen, through humility. He says, live in harmony with one another, and then he says, do not be haughty prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He appeals to this humility because, listen, the biggest barrier to unity is pride. It always has been and it always will be. So, Paul warns about thinking exalted things. That is, thinking too highly of ourselves. 
Our overly exalted opinion of ourselves, they often lead us to think that we are always right, that others are always wrong, that our opinions matter more than anybody else's, and that often prevents the church from exhibiting the unity to which God has called us. And the positive antidote to this kind of pride, of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to, Paul says, is association with the lowly. Now, this could mean a couple of different things. It it could mean to do lowly things, like like to to actually start doing what you would consider beneath you, serve people in ways that that are, you know, bottom of the barrel kind of ways of serving. That's the way you fight the pride in your own heart. Don't don't think that you're above doing things like, like serving people in certain ways. But it could also mean that they're to simply associate with the lowly, those who who the world would see as lowly, those who don't have the same means as them, those who who don't have what they they have in in a worldly, maybe more materialistic sense. Probably both are in view, to be honest, but I, I can't help but think of Jesus associating with the lowly, the poor, the outcast, the sick, of Jesus doing the lowly tasks of a servant. And how the Pharisees, those those who thought so highly of themselves, reviled Jesus for doing that. They refused to associate with others because they deemed themselves to be superior in wisdom. They thought so highly of themselves. But the redeemed community should be marked by humble concern for one another. And every person in the family of God should be treated as valued persons made in the image of God, redeemed and bought by His own Son. Don't be wise in your own sight, loved ones. Remember who you are. You're a sinner saved by grace. And if you have any wisdom at all, it's been given to you by God. If you know the gospel, the wisdom of God, it is not because you are wise, but because God is gracious and merciful. And so as we just conclude, I want to maybe throw all these back up on the screen for us. One final thought. So here's what I want you to do. Look at them all, and here's what I want you to see. What a comprehensive picture of genuine Christ-like love. And you know, we began by, by thinking about what we needed to, to work on, by asking God to help us. And maybe right now God's even impressing upon your heart, this is the one area I want you to go after. This is how I want you to be more like my son, Jesus Christ. And I just, I can't help but think, imagine how happy, how healthy, and how holy churches would be if we loved one another like this. If we looked like this. We would look like Jesus, wouldn't we? We would look like Jesus. If this, if this was us, we would look like Jesus. Which one of these things is for you today? In which way is God calling you to look more like Jesus Christ. Each one of these points us to Christ. Each one of these points us to the gospel. Each one of these is an opportunity for us to both display Christ and the beauty of His gospel. This is how God has loved us. May we, as a result, love more like Him. Let's pray.